and welcome to the first ever episode of Bear Fruits, a monthly-ish podcast in conversation about queer books and literature. I'm Georgie. And I'm Rosie, and we are your hosts. Thank you for tuning in. But before we get started, how are you, Georgie? I'm good. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a bit giddy. I'm feeling a bit nervous. I'm feeling a bit proud because we finally got here after a very long time. We're finally recording this episode. So yeah, but how are you? I am also good. I'm nervous. So giddy about the sun shining. Yeah, it's very hot in here. It is, it is pretty warm. But we have Georgie's dog, Biscuit, our mascot, somewhere in the room. Is she next to you? Yeah, I think she's finally, she's asleep. She's finally settled down and is going to allow us to record this yeah. podcast without any disruption. So we're ready to go. On to the episode. Maybe we should explain why specifically queer books and what do we actually mean by the word queer as for the why i mean there's quite a simple answer for that there is a dearth of podcasts that specifically reflect on the kind of literature we are reading and bear fruits podcast is a hopeful attempt to fill that gap or at least a tiny part of it we're going to be chatting about one book each episode for about 30 to 45 minutes before ending with a short section on TV Corner. Yeah, we've called it TV Corner. We're going to end with 10 minutes of TV Corner where we just talk about different TV shows that have queer characters in them and why we like them. Should we maybe define what we mean by queer first before? Yes, that's a good idea. Would you like to would you like to do that? Yeah, because it is a bit of a nebulous word and I think it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it can also sometimes mean nothing. Yeah, or sometimes I feel like it's lost all meaning. Yeah, all the books that we have selected for this podcast fall under this umbrella of queer. So it might make sense just to explain what we mean. And I think Bell Hooks has our favourite definition of it, which is queer not as being about who you are having sex with. That can be a dimension of it. But queer as being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to live and to thrive. So we're using the word queer to point to or highlight books that centre queer lives or that exist in attention with the surrounding status quo. Likewise, queer theorist Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick defines it as the open mesh of possibilities, gaps, overlaps, dissonances and resonances, lapses and excesses of meaning when the constituent elements of anyone's gender, of anyone's sexuality aren't made or can't be made to signify monolithically. And I like this definition because it highlights all the messy feelings that can't easily be categorised. It does. And I think another quote of Cedric's that's maybe useful for us and speaks to the word queers and kind of capaciousness and implicit subjectivity is anyone's use of queer about themselves means differently from their use of it about someone else. So with that contrary offering we should also say that we're going to be talking about books that we ourselves have enjoyed and that we recommend and that make us excited about the potential of language and writing so today we're going to be talking about daryl by jackie s which came out in 2021 to preface this conversation we should also say that in this episode we're going to talk quite a lot about the content of this book by which i mean the plot maybe more than we anticipated we would we're going to try not to give too many spoilers, but if we do, forgive us. And we'll also Won't. try and warn, we'll warn you. If yeah, we're going to, we're going to warn, we'll say spoiler. Yeah, spoiler you'll, you'll alert. a split second to pause. So Rosie, 
Would you like to do the honours and introduce the author of this book to our listeners? I very much would, yes. We don't know a lot about Jackie S as she has successfully disclosed few details about her life to the internet. But what we do know is that she's a writer and poet living somewhere in the US who describes herself as a minor internet celebrity. She's the co-founder of the Bay Area Trans Writers Workshop and has work published in Heavy Feather Review, The Zaheer, The New Inquiry, Fetch, and in the anthology We Want It All, an anthology of radical trans poetics. Daryl is her first novel, which came out with Clash Books in 2021, and she's currently working on her second novel, or at least Georgie thinks that they read that somewhere. Yeah, I think I did. But yeah, I think everyone is talking about Daryl, or at least everyone in my tiny little corner of the internet was talking about Daryl last year when it came out. The book is a cross between a satire and a psychological thriller. I'm saying this sort of ironically but anyway it's funny it's thoughtful it's kind of sexy and dare I say it's also a romance novel too I had never thought about it as a romance novel um maybe a satirical romance I'm not sure although I'd struggle to see it as a psychological thriller I think but I do like the idea of Daryl as a romantic hero a hero for the cucks which maybe he would identify with but we'll come back to that later But to summarise the book briefly, Daryl's a novel about a man called Daryl Cook, who's a 40-something white guy who lives off his inheritance with his wife in Eugene, Oregon. And the book is slim, it's under 200 pages, and it's written in very short chapters, around two pages each, which read almost as if they're Daryl's diary entries or blog posts, but I think are perhaps just a series of internal monologues where he reflects on his experiences as a cuckold and the web of relationships that are unfolding in his life. Yeah, and we follow his earnest and unfiltered musings through these very succinct entries. And as the story evolves, so does Daryl. Through his encounters with others in the cuckolding lifestyle, he embarks on a turbulent journey of both self-discovery and self-destruction. It is both hilariously funny and deeply tender, And we just found it to be an extremely original and smart book. It was an easy favourite of 2021. Yeah, and I think I read it while we were on holiday together, Georgie. Yeah, we did. In the blazing sun. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed because you read it so fast in just pretty much half a day. And like, that's possible for sure. It's a very short book. But I found that I had to take some space, some time away from the book because you really get into Daryl's head and I think that can be quite an overwhelming experience so I'm impressed yeah I mean it was it was an I didn't have anything else to do you know all I had to do was lie in the sun and read this book so that was a good moment for it I think and my copy still smells of sun cream which I very much appreciate by the way for those who aren't familiar the dictionary definition of a cuckold is a man whose wife is sexually unfaithful and as a pejorative term it dates back centuries connoting a man whose wife is committing adultery without his knowledge However, today in kink fetish circles, and in the case of Daryl, those who participate in the lifestyle are doing so consensually, where one partner gets pleasure out of watching, listening, or even just knowing their partner is having sex with other people. So maybe we should first talk about the character of Daryl, because he has, I mean, obviously he's the protagonist, he's really just the full story, but he has a very distinct voice in terms of how earnest and sincere he is. His voice also expresses how misguided he is. 
and I think he's an inexplicably charming character. Maybe all white Oregonians are like this, but I feel like there is no one like Daryl, at least not in literature, or at least not in any of the novels I've ever read. Yeah, I like the idea that you think you would go to Oregon and then potentially everyone would be like Daryl. <laughs> Maybe he is, I don't know. Like, And also, I mean, Jackie S. was living in Oregon at the time of writing this book, so she must have been somewhat inspired. There is such a specificity to Daryl's voice. It's really like nothing I've read before, although I would say that he's endearing rather than charming. Yeah, maybe. Imagine meeting Daryl. I don't think you'd find him charming, but I think it might have something to do. He's charming to read. Yes, that's true. And I think the the feeling that he's endearing has something to do with his candidness, because when did you ever encounter a male character who was so self-exploratory? Although many are similarly self-involved that's for sure but which is part of the joke of the book you know Daryl's likable because of and not despite his self-involvement Daryl's exploration of himself in particular is so believable it has this character of true embarrassing cringy self-discovery that feels very kind of vital and exciting to read but also very painful because it's so recognizable I read that the book emerged partly via a Twitter account that S made where she would post in the voice of Daryl which I think you can really feel when reading it because the sentences can be broken up into these kind of quippy reflections or short revelations by Daryl about his role as a cuck or his gender, his sexuality and these shifting understandings. It's really such a pleasure to be party to his thought process and he seems to be writing for an audience. He begins the book by addressing a you. It both seems to be private, but Daryl also very much yearns for a public voice, almost to be a representative of the cuckolding community, whilst acknowledging that he can't be, but he still has that desire. But yeah, I think this sort of diary-ish internal monologue form lends itself quite well to Daryl's story because he's wrestling so much with his identity, who he is and what it means to be a cuckold or gay or even perhaps trans. And in this narrative space... He's the lead character and the star of his own story, which I think is meaningful to him because as a self-identified beta male, it's a spotlight he never gets, or at least he never thinks he gets. But yeah, I found it quite refreshing to meet a narrator who's so unsettled in so many aspects of himself because we're meeting him at this point in his life where he's questioning so much and trying out various ideas and identities, which he really knows nothing about. He often puts his foot in it and says the wrong thing, but... It's also fun to see the world through the lens of someone like this. It's not often that I read a book where I doubt the narrator and his depiction of a personal scenario. Like I'm really rooting for Daryl, but he misreads situations and makes such bad ju- judgments all the time. I sort of distrust his his capacity to tell a story without putting his own immense spin on it. For example, he he is convinced that one of the characters he meets, the trans poet called Uthun, he sort of meets in a bar but stays in touch with her via like text and, no, emails. Um, but he's convinced that she's trying to recruit him to become trans when actually she's probably just being kind of nice to him. She thinks he's a nice guy and is just being supportive. But yeah, I mean, he perceives himself very much as an outsider and therefore without power, which is very much not the case and goes hand in hand with his desire to be a cuck or his role as a cuck. So actually the power he does experience is in the enjoyment of shame. And the enjoyment of shame is very much not kind of socially accepted as a part of masculinity. Like to be shamed is bad, which is why the word cuckold has been used negatively for so many years, I think. But 
Daryl seems to be looking in at people's lives rather than playing an active part in them. Or at least that's how he paints it. So we get little sense of what his wife, Mindy, for example, is actually like or what she thinks of him and their life together. And he talks about her as if he hardly knows her. And she certainly seems to have little idea or interest in what he does with his life. Yeah, I mean, about the power thing, like, I think he kind of marginalises himself. And by that, I mean, I don't think he actually is marginalised, but I think he enjoys seeing himself as marginalised. Because then it legitimises his feeling of not having power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so from that standpoint, he is quite defiant. And I think he enjoys that. I think that's something that it means something to him. It gives him something to fight for. Yeah. But at the same time, he also has this extremely unstable sense of self and he imprints himself on almost everyone he comes into contact with. I mean, I have to say, like, we haven't talked about this before, but at some point in the novel, like, he starts getting really spiritual. He starts meditating and talking about nature and being at one with the trees and all that. He takes that from, I guess, Satori and Moonbeam a bit. Oh yeah, so how does he meet Satori and Moonbeam? I can't even remember. Yeah, he meets Satori, who, who's a woman he ends up sleeping with for a while. And she runs a yoga studio and then he becomes interested in spirituality and she introduces him to this guy Moonbeam who just doesn't really need an explanation. You just need to know his name is Moonbeam. You can kind of imagine everything else. But maybe it's good to read a section of it from the beginning of the book. I mean, we've talked about Daryl's voice for a while. Yeah. So the first chapter is called LeBron. You live vicariously through celebrities. I live vicariously through the guys who fuck my wife. But sure, okay, I'm the weird one. Let me ask you this. Do you watch sports at all? I could ask, what's the point if you aren't the one playing? But it isn't exactly a fair question. I think a lot about LeBron James. I can imagine his NBA rings on the bedside table, next to Mindy's wedding ring, and these little antique porcelain ashtrays that Mindy's mum gave us for our wedding. I bet he's got a great grip and big hands that move decisively. A touch with no tickle. No trepidation, no contingency plan, just going to exactly the right place and going straight there. That's basketball. I'm sure he's an all-round athletic, but for some reason, I specifically imagine his hands moving Mindy around. Six foot eight, God. But look, I know as well as you do that that's just a fantasy. And even in fantasy, I try to mostly keep this stuff confined to people confirmed to be in the lifestyle, which I'm pretty sure he isn't, because it's a little objectifying, you know? I try to do right by people. He's a professional athlete, he's focused on the game, focused on, I don't know, his own family probably, his own problems, or maybe just his own fun. I'm just saying that he's got a life, that he isn't just there for me to look at. Just because a guy can fuck my wife doesn't mean he wants to. I think we're going to first start by talking a little bit about Daryl's relationship to women, masculinity and femininity, all the way around. Talking about masculinity. Well, we're talking about, now we're just having a debate about what we're talking about. (laughs) Daryl's relationship to his own masculinity, also his relationship to his own femininity, which he's very reluctant to acknowledge. Yeah. But becomes more and more present. But he's very preoccupied with hierarchies, particularly the order of men, as he puts it, because so much of his sexual life is spent willingly at the bottom of this hierarchy. He's kind of conflicted about what this means for him, for his gender and sexuality, and seems to find himself in a constant tension between the kind of subjugated masculinity that he takes on as a cuck and the desire he has to be a woman, or as he puts it, a priest, a woman, nothingness. 
it's so telling of Daryl's mindset and the equivalence he assumes between these three, I don't really know what to call them, feelings, embodiments. I'm interested in the priest example he throws in there, maybe because I don't really understand it. A priest is like a woman in Daryl's eyes because a priest is a receiver. They receive God or are in some way subjugated by him. Are they God's cucks? What do you think? Don't look at me. I am not a priest, so I cannot speak on their behalf, but they sacrifice everything to serve God or something. The word sacrifice is kind of interesting here because do you think Daryl sees being a cuck as sacrificing something? Or being a woman. This reminds me of one of the main theses in Andrea Longchu's book, Females, where she defines femaleness as distinct from being a woman as, quote, any psychic operation in which the self is sacrificed to make room for the desires of another. To be female is to let someone else do your desiring for you at your own expense. So in Chu's estimation, this makes everyone female because at some point everybody sacrifices themselves to make room for the desires of another whether knowingly or unknowingly but regarding Daryl it strikes me that this is what he thinks being a woman is so to entirely submit to the other and he craves this kind of release of responsibility this nothingness as he sees it the the idea of nothingness and being a woman that relation seems very clear to me but the priest thing I yeah I don't know about the priest thing. But in a way, it's like all of those things he thinks he can't be or experience. And therefore, they seem very appealing. Because in order to reach those feelings or embodiments, he would have to disavow his own masculinity, which he like wants to do, but is too scared to do. Yeah. So they're alluring for the very fact of them not being accessible to him yeah. as he perceives it. Yeah. Yeah, okay yeah, yeah. good we can move on um but if i loop back to the quote and follow this line of thinking these three examples give us a great sense of how daryl is feeling this confusion of wanting to be or feel nothing as opposed to the kind of hot and painful feeling of shame which is also towed up with arousal but i mean there are two kinds of shame that we could distinguish between here one is the desire to have his masculinity shamed as a cuck and the shame that he feels when he, or I would actually say the desire to have his kind of alpha masculinity, because it's not all masculinity. No. His idea of what masculinity should be yeah. shamed as a cuck. And then the shame that he feels when he explores his desire to be a woman or to want a man. Yeah. And the nothingness is both a blissful escape from the painful shame and also maybe a desired state of acceptance. Yeah. I think it's an equivalence he doesn't really believe to be true, but finds alluring somehow. And it's a way for him to think through his relationship to femininity. Yeah. And Mindy, Daryl's wife, is one of the few women in the book. And she certainly loves getting fucked all the time and exercises this agency and controls all of their finances, spending them on her lovers, um, but is still very thinly drawn for the reader, which is a, very much a reflection of the way that Daryl sees her. And she also has a lesbian relationship for a while, which I would have loved to hear more about. And Daryl isn't as turned on by this form of cucking. So when it's two women, he can't relate to this like exchange of power anymore. Yeah. And he also says that he regards lesbianism as none of his business, which I like. 
Yeah, I feel like Mindy and actually most of the women in the book are only ever portrayed through indirect speech. There's always Mindy says this, which means we only ever encounter her through Daryl's representation of her, which really distances her from us as readers. And also I love that he describes watching lesbian sex as like watching a computer win a chess tournament, which I just find to be very Daryl, very unsexy, but very Daryl. It is, but shall I read the quote? Because it's really good. Yeah, it's good. So the woman that Mindy's dating is called Kit and he's talking about watching them have sex. Watching Kit is like watching a computer win a chess tournament. Not because she does it without feeling, that's not what I mean. It just seems so effortlessly great, but not in a way that I can connect to, even enough to activate my usually charged feelings of inadequacy. But part of the difficulty of his journey is that he perhaps wants to be a woman but can't square that with the role that women take in his life so he wants to be fucked and he wants to be invisible and he thinks that this has something to do with femininity while he recognizes that the woman he knows can't be reconciled with these two contrasting ideas so daryl shows little interest in mindy but then begins to relate to her later in the book as he realizes he wants to get fucked by bill and i keep using the word fucked because that's the word daryl uses he's very clear that that's what he wants And it's really how I feel like he sees sex. It's about getting fucked. Yeah. He's then drawing parallels between Mindy's desires and his own. He starts thinking about what it would be like if he were a girl. And he says, quote, I'd have been pretty and passive, more like Mindy. But Mindy isn't passive. She just likes to take it. I'm starting to realise I'm a little bit jealous of her. And he insists throughout the book that he isn't gay or trans and is very fearful of these possibilities, and his desires really escape his own understanding, which feels like a very honest portrayal, because who can really explain their own desires and their shifting nature? But he does do the unrelenting and ultimately fruitless work of constantly trying to justify his role as a cuck. Yeah, I love the utter confusion of it all, because Daryl is so determined to explain and rationalise and justify himself, but running in perfect parallel are his subconscious impulses, like his many eggy statements, which slip out unknowingly. And I think that duality is really well depicted by S. Yeah, it's a great example of how our desires don't always follow the line of our politics, or even just the line of what we think they should be. Yeah, exactly. Um, But maybe also you could explain what an egg is... An egg is a trans person who has yet to discover that they are trans. S has written about Daryl and some of her other characters that they are trying to get their relationship to desire right in a way that would guarantee it against judgment and against anxiety. And she says she thinks he hasn't quite understood yet that there are no guarantees like that for anyone. Another great quote from Daryl is when he says, I've fallen out of masculinity, but I never landed just falling forever. I think I'm too much of a feminist to be trans, but some women are losers too. What if I was like them? Oh my God. What a great sentence. I'm too much of a feminist to be trans. I don't even want to unpack that. No. But um, I just love the way that S crafts these sentences and they they start and you think they're going to go in one direction and they just flip flip on their heads. But um, I'm just going to pull out a phrase here, which is falling forever. So he said, I never landed just falling forever. I also just love the idea of falling out of masculinity or falling out of a gender. It's a very nice image somehow. Yeah, and also with the way he sees it through this like hierarchy, it's funny that he's sort of falling down. Yeah, he's already at the bottom of the hierarchy. He's he's, he's falling down because he sees it as men at the top, women at the bottom, and in the middle he's 
sort of somewhere in the middle, right? Because he's falling out of gender, but is he falling into another gender or is he just falling out of all... I guess he's falling out of masculinity. But if he fell out of masculinity, would you fall into femininity? (laughs) But if you're falling forever, you don't land. For sure. But maybe femininity is just falling forever. Poignant. But what I was going to say is that this phrase falling forever is... I I don't want to say it's taken from this text because I have no idea, but it reminds me of uh, an essay written by paediatrician and psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott and in this text he's writing about the concept of good enough mothering and what happens to a baby when the holding environment it experiences is not good enough and Maggie Nelson also uses this quote in the Argonauts which goes as follows the primitive agonies falling forever all kinds of disintegration things that disunite the psyche and the body and Perhaps I'm reading into this too much, but I would say that Daryl is experiencing some kind of primitive agony and he's definitely experiencing something that disunites his psyche from his body. He doesn't know how he wants to be loved or who as. But the phrase falling forever to me holds so much of his experience and where he goes throughout the book, he's kind of searching for clues of how to be from others and wants so much to be held by them and experiences this in fragments and eventually spoiler alert in the loving arms of bill good spoiler yeah so bill bill is another guy that's having sex with mindy but then him and daryl end up having this sexual relationship that's kind of very tentative and evolves very slowly and daryl kind of becomes more and more invested in it as the novel goes on but maybe it's interesting to talk about the role fear plays for him. He's terrified of being gay or trans, but is so drawn to Uthun and has a very tangible and realistic fear of Clive. Clive is one of Mindy's lovers and he's very drawn to Clive, who's terrifying and cold and a kind of right-wing brute with a very violent past. But Daryl is very enamoured by him. Yeah, I think Daryl's morbid fascination with Clive is definitely rooted in his masochistic tendencies like it's all fun and games until the character of Brad services and we haven't talked about Brad yet have we no maybe you could just outline that yeah part of the story Brad is a character who actually who died before the time frame of the novel but he's somehow connected with Clive and the BDSM scene yeah yeah and and he was active in the local BDSM scene I don't know how many years ago but in the past and this event sort of breaks through the veneer that cushions Daryl and his lifestyle from anything resembling actual danger. And so through this plot line, the spectre of death and danger, I guess, looms really large. And it illuminates the quite a dark underside to Daryl's story, which is softened and distorted by Daryl's narration. But it makes it something of a thriller because he's really, he's set about like excavating this this death like it's some sort of detective story that is his job to uncover also like it's going to give him some information that he needs somehow but I also would say that it's a bit of a wet blanket of a thriller which I guess is why it's comedic because Daryl kind of knows that and another spoiler here that Clive killed Brad and is drawn to him because of this which is where the darkness is rather in the question of who killed Brad and why it's more like why Daryl wants to get so close to the person who was involved. Yeah, but I think it's because he has this immense fixation with death and danger. But why do you think that? 
he has this addiction to GHB, which he overdoses on in the early pages of the novel, and he ends up in hospital, which is another reason why I feel like he doesn't take it anything seriously. He's like, oh, I was in hospital, I nearly died. And then on the other, another occasion, while under the influence, he even asks Bill to kill him, which, of course, he didn't actually mean, but the fact that he even asked a real person that. Mm. I feel like he thinks he's in a TV show. He does talk about movies a lot. There's actually a quote which I would like to find. So this is at a moment when Daryl has found a little bit more information about Brad and he's disturbed by the information he's found. And he says, I'm very frightened of this situation, but there's a feeling of being doomed by my curiosity. Reminds me of old movies, pulling into the mansion on Sunset Boulevard. I don't want to ruin my life, but I want to understand what happened. I always catch myself thinking these very paralyzed feelings about Clive. For example, that he's an actual monster, that he's Hannibal Lecter. But then I think, no, that's nonsense. Do you think his fixation with death really amounts to suicidal urges or is it all part of his subconscious bringing him closer to his masochistic or like self-destructive, I don't want to conflate those things, but self-destructive desires? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to separate the suicidal urges from masochism. I don't think he really wants to die, but it's like close to this feeling of nothingness that he wants to experience. But like it's all part of this charade. He's this helpless damsel in distress who has no handle or autonomy in any situation. So in a way, these are moments that he surrenders himself to his desire to be what he thinks women are. We wanted to talk about the political backdrop that frames the novel. It's relevant because the book is very embedded in what was happening during this period. So for context, it's 2017 in the United States. Trump has just started his presidency and the alt-right movement which blew up online in forums like 4chan, is reaching its peak in terms of its growth and influence. Daryl's thinking is very much shaped by the stuff he reads online. He even admits at one point to going on 4chan, but he makes it very clear that he doesn't support the politics. However, as always, politics has a way of entering the bedroom. Here specifically, it's the far right's co-optation of the term cuck as a pejorative to describe someone who is weak and emasculated. Yeah, so we wanted to talk about this connection because the character of Clive, who is the alpha in Daryl's cuckolding triad with Mindy, seems to embody what many see as a paradox, or as Daryl puts it, it seems strange to be so right-wing and have a connection to all this deviant sex, but maybe it isn't. Maybe Clive decided at some point that he was interested in real power and real violence, and that means politics. I mean, this is for sure not a paradox, but rather an expression of some kind of conflicting moral ideology and sexual desire. And we were hunting around trying to find more about the right-wing cuckolding world, although we were scared to dig too deep. And we came across the term cockservative, which refers to Republicans who are selectively and opportunistically left-leaning. And this, in the eyes of fellow Republicans, belittles them as men. This is also assuming that all Republicans are men and brings humiliation on them whilst they get some kind of excitement from this degradation, from the abandonment of their own moral standards. And uh, white supremacists have used this term to condemn white politicians who they say unknowingly promote the interests of Jews and non-whites. So the term has racist connotations. You are cucked by someone whose actions are deemed to humiliate you or expose your inadequacy as a man. The far right are fearful of having their country taken away from them, therefore being cucked by the non-white population. 
And incel culture, or at least some factions of incel culture, takes it one step further. And I have this quote, which I can't remember what article I've taken it from, but I'll link it in the show notes. They say, sometimes they, by which I mean incels, extend the insult to taking every man who has ever had sex with a woman who isn't a virgin, and who therefore, according to incel logic, has been cucked by every other man she has slept with before him. So to an incel, the only thing worse than a woman, or the feminist project at large, is a cuck. I was reading Amir Srinivasan's The Right to Sex, which came out in 2021 with Bloomsbury, and she talks a lot about incel culture and ideology. A lot of the stuff she writes describes characteristics that felt really weirdly connected with Daryl's perspective. And what is similar, I think, is their obsession with masculinity and the way that they perceive it through these very fixed hierarchies of desirability. And perhaps more importantly, that they believe themselves to be at the bottom of this hierarchy. Women are also viewed through this hierarchical lens and it's very racialized and concerned with physical features and genetics. But what makes Daryl distinct is that he embraces his inferiority and revels in it, whereas an incel resents it because he believes he's entitled to better. And that resentment eventually turns into violent misogyny. I feel like there's a link between the stuff that you were talking about with Andrea Longchu's females where she's talking about the red pill, blue pill analogy. Ah, yeah, I think it is connected. And maybe I can bring in a passage here where Longchu is writing about the alt-right's recent co-optation of the red pill scene from The Matrix as a parable for the awakening from feminist brainwashing. And she writes, There's something in this. Taken seriously, it suggests that the manosphere red pillar's resentment of immigrants, black people and queers is a sadistic expression of his own gender dysphoria. In this reading, he is an abortive man, a beta trapped in an alpha's body, consumed with the desire to be female and desperately trying to repress it. So what we're trying to get at here, I think, is that the alt-right have such a narrow idea of masculinity and what it is and should be. And Andrea Long Chu is suggesting that this could also be read as, or can look similar to, gender dysphoria. And this thought places Daryl in an interesting position because he is a beta male within the sexual configurations he chooses, and he likes it. But this subordinate position also calls up the idea of femininity for him, and in particular his consequent desire to have sex with men, which in his mind also means he cannot be male at all. How can two kinds of masculinity rub up against each other? In his world they can't really, and that's the central tension of the novel for him. If he can't be an alpha male, then he's not a male at all. And the, the other central tension that this kind of links to is that he also wants to be a female. He likes it. Mm. It's not just that he is somehow cucked into this position. He also takes pleasure in it. Yeah. I am curious to know what draws Jackie S specifically to characters like Daryl Cook and Cliff Cannon. Cliff Cannon is this controversial online persona who S developed as a sort of prank. He describes himself as transamorous and caused a stir online under this pseudonym. But both Daryl and Cliff bear these really striking similarities with, with one another. They're both these earnest, middle-class white men with stigmatised sexual preferences that they spend their time online trying to justify. They both have these relational ties to trans people, which gives S the space to address certain facets of trans-adjacent experience, but they're also worlds apart from S in terms of who they are and how they identify, 
which removes the presumption that she necessarily stands behind what they think or say. It's kind of annoying that this even needs pointing out. Writers should be able to write fiction without people psychoanalyzing the author through the characters. There's this old sexist trope that women writers can only write characters that are fictionalised versions of themselves because they lack imagination to think outside their own perspectives. And on top of that, if you're trans, there's this limited one-dimensional expectation that your writing has to be about your transness. So, yeah, trans women writers are in this impossible bind where everything they write is assumed to be about themselves, but also nothing they write is allowed to be about anything other than them. So before we end this section of the podcast on Daryl, shall we conclude with our favourite lines from the book? Oh, yeah, let's do that. I want to hear yours. Okay, so this is my favourite quote. Reading some of my old books from college, making quotes from them. What does it matter how many lovers your wife has if none of them gives you the universe? That's Jacques Lacan. More like, Lacan not understand what the hell he's saying. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Daryl. Um, my favourite quote. Well, not my favourite, but one that I just stayed with me. Why do I even remember my dreams? It'd be all right to forget them. Maybe the fact that holding on to them is related to the way I never really accepted what it is to be a man. I never accepted reality. I was always a cheerleader for another world that touches this one. But I'm a cheerleader for the brutes too. I'm like a dog. I like everybody. Dreams are a fairy tale thing. The touch is so light. Is this religion? I feel like what I believe in is nothing like God. It's something right here in a guy like Bill. Maybe that's what Christianity is. Beautiful. Yeah, it is right. And also in this quote, what Daryl is saying is so similar to a line from Tennessee Williams' play, A Streetcar Named Desire, ah. where Blanche says, I don't want reality, I want magic. Ah, yeah. And it's so funny how that side of him really comes out here. Because also what he's saying about dreams is kind of poignant. These sentences are very beautiful and also ridiculous simultaneously. Yeah. I think that Jackie S puts a lot of references from other books in this novel and not in a way that is really obvious no but also Uthun's character her name comes from a William Blake poem yeah the visions of the daughters of Albion and also I have not read Nevada by Casey Platt but so there's a character who's strikingly similar to Uthun mm. I think and I don't know if that's the explicit reference or like it's meant to say anything about the book or anything like you don't need to know that yeah for you to understand the book but there are lots of little i don't Tidbits. know yeah quite things that are like hidden inside the novel that echo other things yeah but i just like the idea that daryl's desires run very close to that of this fading southern beauty yeah of blanche there's something quite nice about that i haven't read that it's great i yeah. recommend it i should i think that wraps up this episode quite nicely i agree i agree so yeah now we'll move to tv corner after a short musical interlude And so, we turn to TV Corner. Georgie, are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready. 
Maybe it's good to say that this part of the podcast is entirely self-indulgent and there's just a moment where me and Georgie talk about TV. We don't really explain the backstory of anything. We include lots of spoilers. Mm -hmm. I guess it's both for people who already watch the stuff that we talk about or those who for some reason are just desperate for an insight into our relationship with the queer characters of the screen. (laughs) Beautiful. So uh, (laughs) what we're going to talk about this week is the season finale of The L Word, Generation Q. Or I should say season two finale. I had to admit to you earlier on that I accidentally did not watch this episode. Yeah, after responding to my notes, you then were like, I actually haven't seen it. (laughs) So I thought that the series ended on episode nine. There's actually 10 episodes. And I, I mean, I watched this a few weeks ago now. I didn't even notice, but this says something about the show. I mean, it's chaotic, let's be honest. I only found out this morning when I was thinking about what I would say that I discovered that I just missed a whole episode well I mean the actual season finale was a season finale but just so many ends left unresolved yeah I have all these questions but you didn't see it but I'm going to pose them all and then you can just respond because they also refer to the general things that happen during the season you know and the characters relationships with each other but maybe it's nice to say that the l word was a show with many seasons how many so many six it felt like way more came out in the 2000s early 2000s it did not age well it like follows the lives of a bunch of pretty wealthy mostly white cis lesbian women in la in la almost all of the main characters are in this spin-off or not really a spin-off an extension i I think all of them are because some died obviously yeah um and so my questions to you georgie oh god Bet and Tina, will they get back together? I hope not. Really? Oh my I god! Really don't I don't together. know what I want because I just I'm I just attached no to this. But Bet is so mean in this season. Bet she's so mean. dislikable. Yeah, she's very mean. And I don't understand why. I was she always that dislikable? Is it is she soured with age? I think she's. I think she her personality hasn't changed. Like she's still a very sort of strident and opinionated. I guess. Yeah, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but she doesn't have many tender moments. I no. think like some with Angie and some at the end with Pippa. But yeah, she's mostly just mean. But I think maybe that's because she's still in love with Tina. She definitely is, and I think that's why. I mean, she's so mean to Carrie. Carrie is, okay, I don't know why I'm explaining this because we're not really explaining much about the show, but Carrie is Tina's new fiancé or new partner. I like Carrie. I like Carrie. Angie likes her. I think that's a good sign. Pretty much one of the only butch lesbians on the show. Yes, for sure. There's hardly any. Yeah. That's very true. And also, you know, she's not super, super slim. She's a bit older as well. Yeah, so it's really a shame that she's drawn in this way where she just becomes the foil for Bet's dissatisfaction i really feel like we're supposed to dislike carrie because of the way that the show portrays bet's dislike for carrie i feel like we're supposed to understand it's like oh bet is so cultured and she just can't bear to be around this person that she considers to be like beneath her or something it's really unpleasant yeah and tina she's not in it why is that because she can't act okay (laughs) no i'm joking (gasps) i actually didn't want to say that like i don't know why she's not in it i mean they're all not great at acting no, but I think she's, like, sp- particularly bad. Okay. Although, no, I take that back. I think there's some good acting in there. Yeah? Who? <laughs> um, I think Bet has oh, a range. Angie. 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 Oh, yeah, totally great. She's amazing. Bet has range. Yeah, she does. Alice is just Alice. Like, she doesn't really, she can't really do anything else than who she is. But maybe that's the writing, not the acting. Yeah, that's true. But I feel like in real life, she is Alice. Like yeah, the maybe. Like, the Leisha. 
Lisa, Lisa, Lisa I feel like she just is Alice yeah that's fine for me don't have a problem with that but another question that I have why is the way that Bet talks about art so annoying it's unbearable like really it's very deeply idealistic. unbearable it's very cringy it makes me cringe and I appreciate seeing someone moved by art mm. that's great but I just can't watch it or I don't believe it also that scene where Bet and Pippa are having sex in this art installation and it's like some kind of oh, blissful oh my god yeah I mean I really like Pippa though and I think that yeah. this match is potentially I, this, is, this is another reason why I don't want Tina and Bet to get back together because Pippa's amazing Pippa's like the person that Bet needs but does Pippa need Bet that's my no, question no probably not yeah no that's true okay <laughs> and we'll move on from that you have a lot of questions. I'm just reading them now. Well, yeah, I have lots of questions. We can't fit it all in, but maybe we'll do one more. Uh, why is Angie's relationship with Geordie completely desexualized? I know True. they're teenagers. I mean, I don't even know how old they're supposed to be. Prom? Are they supposed to be like six? I don't know 16? about American I don't know. high school, but yeah, like 16, I think. Yeah. It's so desexualized that I actually forgot that they were a couple. Me too. And then I remembered and it felt really weird. Yeah. Because it's like neither of them have any sexual desire. Yes. I don't understand that. I don't know why they desexualized that relationship so much. I don't really find Geordie that nice. And it's strange because she's really detached from Angie's life and not doesn't seem to take the things she's going through very seriously. And then we're supposed to believe that's because she's just planning how she's going to ask Angie to prom. If that was me, I would be like, you do not know me. I do not need this grand display to invite me to prom. I mean, does Angie like it? I don't know. Well, she seems to like it. Yeah, I didn't buy it. I mean, of course she bought it, but I would, I would not be okay. happy in that situation. So to round off, we don't buy it and we're waiting on 10 hooks. I mean, this show is bad. It's soapy, but it's good. I mean, yeah, but in a way that is very necessary. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I've obviously enjoyed watching it, but it's very frustrating at the same time. Well, you've got one episode left, so... I do. Will you watch it? I will. Of course I will. I always watch bad shows. I mean, I, I mean, I don't even think this show is nearly as bad as some of the bad shows I watch. All of that to come. So, that concludes it. We've come to the end of our first episode. And we'd like to thank Aidan Wall for our great jingle, Dana Casey for the beautiful graphic design, Charlie Clemos for lending us the equipment, Biscuit the Dog for being our fairy supporting and very noisy mascot today, and everyone who passed no judgment while we floundered and procrastinated for two years before starting this podcast. If you made it this far, thank you for staying with us, and we'll see you next time. You can stream episodes of Bear Fruits on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at bear underscore fruits underscore podcast. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at bearfruitspodcast at gmail.com. All lowercase. 